We're in the middle of Midtown Manhattan, but we're actually on Hollywood Boulevard. We're Hollywood Boulevard East, is how I'll call it. Oh, nice. Yeah, HBE. HBE. HBE to the E. Yeah, so if you guys hadn't listened to what I call our our other sibling podcast on Back on the Block, yeah, first of all, she's saying shame, shame because tonight is Game of Thrones as we record, but also, (laughs) this is a historic Hollywood Boulevard in that it is the first time Karen and I are doing this in the same space. We are here together. She is in town in New York. We're here in her uh, hotel room high above uh, Rockefeller Center area. And and so here we are in person. We can't even make faces at each other without the other one seeing. No. As soon as I yawn, he's going to know. I can kind of tell. <laughs> even when we're apart. <laughs> So, and it's earlier for us too. It is. It is. No, if we, if we sound a bit more coherent, it is because the sun is sort of still out. Yeah. Um, and before we get started, I do have some TV things I'm going to talk about, and uh, Karen will ask questions. I also wanted to say there are, what seven episodes of Game of Thrones? The final seven it's or only eight? Seven? I think they're only giving us seven. I oh, think but, so, but a couple be longer, longer, right? Yeah. So as we go along, we're going to try and watch ASAP and and keep up. So if you guys want to ask. Uh, GOT related questions or have Game of Thrones related conversations definitely hit us up about that and before we forget at the end of the episode I'll just say right now um, you can track us down at uh, Back on the Block Pod on Facebook 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 (laughs) (laughs) that was the new Justin Timberlake album he's bringing Facebook no please um, feel free to have a Game of Thrones related conversation and also to give us five stars on iTunes. Now... I will talk about Game of Thrones forever. Having said that, we might have some long episodes then. Yes, we might. As they will. So so shall, so, so shall we. Um, so I want to talk about a couple other shows that have ended their runs. Okay. Um, and the big one I'll talk about is the hour-long one, and that is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which Never ended a four-season run. So I don't want to talk about it too long because I sort of talked about it last year as it ended its third season. I sort of liked it. I sort of didn't. I, I, I never thought it was fully ready for prime time and I think it did some cool meta things. Um, but it was uh, basically a vehicle for Rachel Bloom. Right. And, and so it did a lot of not fourth wall breaking but definitely a lot of self-referencing and referencing a lot of existing TV tropes it tried to you know like burst a lot of bubbles about like like the rom-com tropes and uh, I don't think it was always fully genuine because ultimately what this season was um she'd had three main love interests over the course of four years and then just back it up this is that she goes and follows yes somebody that she has as an adult she's a a new york lawyer and she gives up her life and moves to this uh like southern california suburbs because she happens to run into her like first love her team love and she like basically follows him drops everything and catches up with him after where he already has a life he at that point has a girlfriend and so she like in the midst of trying to win him back, ends up also falling for his best friend. So there are spells where she has been with both of them, and they've had, like, ill-defined and short-lived relationships. And then the the best friend was played by Santino Fontana, who left the show under, I'm not sure what circumstances. We're going to talk about him on a future podcast, by the way, because he's back in the leading role on Broadway. But, um... 
they basically created a new male lead for her to have a romance with, and that was at her law firm. Ah. So they there were like stops and starts along the way, and in the third season they took a back seat um, with the the will she won't she with any guys to focus on um, a, a mental illness storyline. She actually oh. attempted suicide on a flight. Her character did, so they had a, had a lot of episodes and discussions about her medications and what was working and therapy and what was working and what her expectations were and her personality disorder. They made it very explicit what was going on in ways that I don't know that were necessarily artful, but I think were, but I like 100% applaud because they were putting a lot of that stigmatized stuff in the open. And that stuff I give them credit for. Um, and of course they, they have at least one song per episode written by Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne. The songs are often fun, but none of them are really original because they're always making fun of, like, an existing sound. Uh, like, of okay. all kinds. Like, in one of the... I think it was the penultimate episode. They did a Guys and Dolls, Luck Be a Lady Tonight kind of number about everyone betting on which guy will Rebecca, her Rachel Bloom's character, end up with. Uh, there was one popular song called Let's Generalize About Men, which is just It's Raining Men, with new lyrics. So I'm like... I applaud you as being a musical TV show, but I wish the music was more original. At any rate, this season ended up being more about which one of the three guys will she get with. The penultimate episode is the one where she's actually on... She tells the guys she's still got feelings for each of them and needs to figure out who she wants to be with and goes on a date bachelor style with each of them. And they reference that it is bachelor style. So they get points for calling themselves out on everything they're doing, but then they lose the points because... They're not doing anything new for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, they refocus the final episode, and we can take it back to Aaron Spelling, because she basically pulls a very famous Jenny Garth line, which is, I choose me. Because there was a Uh, whole, is it going to be Dylan, is it going to be Brandon? And basically, the end of the series is, she goes, no, I decided my true love in life isn't any of you men or being a lawyer. It's, I love all the songs that I've had in my head. Because they were basically, like, Chicago-style. Like, they were in her mind. Right. Like, on Glee, kind of the way they would do it. The, um, and so she decides she's going to write music, and that's the path she's going to follow. I don't know that it necessarily worked. It seemed like it was kind of a cheap thing to pull. <laughs> like Because we've always known that the music was integral to the show, but it was odd that, like... That it would have been a secret from the other characters exactly how her mind worked in that regard. And it's not its not a new thing in 2019 to be like, I don't need a man, I'm going to follow my music. That kind of thing feels a little anticlimactic. If you look, if nothing at, else. If you look at the psychology of story, um, you, one of the things, that you, or storytelling, we shall say, instead of story, you want to close the loop. It's called closing the right. loop, right? Right. So, when you come to the end of the story, to make the story satisfying to your readers, your viewers, whatever it might be, you want the loop closed. Now, I know everybody applauds things that does that do things differently, that, like, right? That, tear the fabric apart. tear the fabric right. apart, you know what I mean? But I do think, ultimately, you do lose. There's a letdown. Right. When yeah, you don't I, close I, that one, loop. I 100% agree. And that's yeah. exactly what they did here. Because they started it with her heading out to California for a romance. Right. And I get that she ended up finding herself. But, you know, I think that there's also, like, such a push for, like, with women to 
be independent and go find yourself and not and, be and, defined and not by, be another defined person by another person. Right. Yeah. That actually we are leaving the relationship thing behind and yeah. relationships are like a core part of hum- humans, of who we are as yeah. humans. Like if you look at basic needs, like what are our basic needs? And it's like food, shelter, you know, and, and companionship. companionship is one of those basic To care needs. for and be cared for. Yeah. yeah. And so and so I don't think that there is anything wrong with a having a love story or closing a loop right. that you've opened there was a, I mean, around a relationship. Nose thumbing is not exactly the word that I want, but there is a little bit of like we're we're just trying to give you something else under the guise of Oh, we just reinvented the show. And it's like, well but it didn't seem to be the plan you had all along. And so right. that's why it feels a little disappointing. Right. Um, I've never thought it was a grade A show to begin with, though it was entertaining. And, and I, I mean, I think it shined a spotlight on some some good character actors. Um, and all was always to be given credit for hiring very diverse right. cast members. Um, but I think a show that closed the loop in a, in a more satisfactory way that was in keeping to the way it started was You're the Worst, which was on FX and just finished its five-season run. And that is kind of um, interesting because it was a show that also dealt with mental illness and also kind of purported to be a comedy, just not a sitcom. And I think they were able to keep within the rules they set for themselves in the very beginning. Now, nothing... You've never seen this, have I you? haven't, and I, and I keep going, you should watch that, but I've never seen it. I mean... I do think it's a very a very worthy show. Um, I think nothing can top the way it was in its second season. It had a five-season run, I think. I can't remember if I said, but second season is when it's... So it's these two, like, they're really kind of, like, detestable people. Like, in, in L.A., Aya Cash plays a publicist, and Chris Gere, he's a Brit, plays a writer. Um, and they're both, like, super self-absorbed. And um, find each other, start hooking up, and it sort of becomes a committed relationship that they don't want to. They don't want to say like they need each other. They don't want to adhere to like societal norms. In season two, a lot of it revolved around the Aya Cash character talking about how she suffers from depression and had a really bad breakdown when she was in college. Um, it's one reason why she is very loyal to her crazy best friend, played by Kether Donahue, because she was always there for her and supports her now. It was really, really, really well-developed and sustained. And in subsequent seasons, they just kept going around and around with, like, a, a breakup, get-together, cheat on each other, but still can be together way that was more... that got away from the mental illness thing and was back about, like... We don't want to be a happy couple defined the way everyone thinks all happy couples should be. But in the end, we think we're going to be. So this season, they were engaged. They had broken up and gotten back together and gotten engaged. And at the very beginning, I think, of this last season, we also do like a flash forward and see that they must be broken up. Because we see him selling their house. And later on, we see her at a bar saying she had been engaged once. And it didn't work, and he's flirting with another guy at a bar. And in the second-to-last episode, uh, the groom's best friend and best man tells him, don't marry her, she's not right for you, you guys are still lying to each other, you're making excuses for her, blah, blah, blah. And what we ultimately see in the final episode is the bride and groom do have a fight, they don't get married, and we also get flash-forwards in the middle of all this, yet they do stay together. 
in a very committed relationship. They eventually have a kid, but they're not married. So it's like they're doing it their way. They're not defined by the typical social constraints. Uh, And again, sorry for spoiling these things, but this is how I'm viewing the shows at the end. (laughs) Um, And and for me, it wasn't an A+, but it worked. It was very in keeping with their stylistic choices throughout. Um, And I also think throughout, the acting has always been been great. They played very hedonistic LA characters and never lost sight of the fact that these people still like hurt and had souls. They were they were always really good. So I think that one ended on a very fitting note. Cool. So so good for you the worst and and also then kind of quickly Broad City ended its own 5 year run um and it made pretty big deals out of um Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer. Uh this season the whole thing was almost like its own victory lap. It felt very last season. Mm-hmm. Um, ab- the, a lot of talk about just how much they love each other and are going to be friends forever. And then close to the end, Abby gets this um, writing residency in Colorado. It, this show was always about what it was like to be a young woman and to be a young woman living in New York now. Right. And... and the Alana Glazer character was always, like, the crazier character, um, was always, like, super devoted to Abby. And Abby even has a lesbian fling in this final season, which there's a moment of, well, Alana's jealous, because if she's going to be a lesbian with anyone, why isn't it her best friend? She loves her and would do anything for her. And that's kind of dropped. So they have that, like, they did at the end of Sex and the City and Friends, where, uh, Carrie Bradshaw was going to go to Paris, and, uh, Rachel was going to go to Paris, so this Colorado is Abby's Paris, and it's, they have, like, a three-episode kind of, like, gearing up for, like, the big goodbye. And that's basically it. It's like, and they had a big goodbye. It's like, okay, also, I believe this residency was, like, three or four months long. Like, Abby was going to come back to New York. (laughs) So, so it was sweet, but it was, I don't think they did any, I don't think they broke any new ground this season. Um, so it just kind of felt like, all right, we're, we're doing one last lap around the Comedy Central track. I'll be curious to see how both of their careers go, because, I mean, this has proven to be a great springboard for them, but, um, they mostly are just playing variations on the persona in the show, and that's them. Right, right, right. So, we'll see. Um, and there's a couple more shows that we'll be talking about as the next couple Hollywood boulevards move along. Um, also a couple of shows that are just getting started as, as this TV season sort of winds down. So, so there's just when you think your DVRs will be a bit emptier, uh, you're not out of the woods yet. Yeah. I've noticed there are a bunch of shows. Cause it's April. It's mid April. It's mid April, but I've noticed there are a bunch of shows coming up that I'm like, Ooh, I got to catch up. You know, I mean, obviously, um, you know, the things that I watch, like the 100 and yeah, Zombie, yeah, Zombie yeah. Final Season. Is that coming back right now? Is it uh, starting soon, at Season Soon, yeah. Is that going to yeah. still end, like, May, or is that going to go into the summer? I think it goes, it goes into the okay. summer. So we've got the final season of iZombie. I think we're still going. I think they're still churning along with the 100. Um, and then there were a couple of, um, it looks like the CW is bringing another vampire show in. That's a new vampire show, or is a it somehow one, connected to its universe? But I don't know if it's connected or not. Interesting. I, I haven't been able that to up. find much. I haven't been able. And to by might, I am looking that up. Um, I'm actually kind of angry at the CW because they took away um, 
they're 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 all of the shows that um, you know we I had been watching like the originals and although I stopped with the Vampire Diaries because it was annoying me but even like looking at Flash um, and Arrow and stuff like that they've brought in these children the kids the mm-hmm. kids of the heroes and they've done it so that it's like well you know it's it the like the adult daughter comes back um, in in Flash universe because she's from the future and she comes right. back to the past. You know, so they're doing these things where they're introducing these new characters, but they're the kids because the CW is basically saying, okay, our original stars, you're now too old. You've aged out of our audience, almost like Nickelodeon. Right, right. And I just feel like that's so gross because the shows were fine. They, you know, yeah. like the shows were fine. They were, they were going, they, and, and, and what they've recreated with these kids, I just find so less interesting. And the acting is not as good because the, the kids are just too young. They, they have no experience. Well, yeah, there is that, you know, they have no, they have no, uh, nothing behind them. So anyway, CW, if you're listening, I'm very disappointed in you. It looks like he is going to be in an upcoming Netflix series called V Wars. Oh, is that it's Vampire Wars? Then it must be Netflix. So I think then. that is a. I, I think that was, is a new. Its I own thing. It was CW, but it's its own thing. Okay, sorry. Sorry, C Dub. Sorry, C Dub. But that looked. Uh, he was posting pictures, and I was like, "Yay, he's a vampire again." Um. Oh, I was gonna. Oh, I was just gonna talk about some of the other new shows. So there is. They just started the Fosse Verdon. Thing yeah. about Fosse and Gwen Verdon on FX, but those that's like an eight episode limited thing, so right. that won't last long. And the new season of Killing Eve just started, and then the final season of Jane the Virgin just began. And Barry and Veep have just started their seasons, but I think most of those will be done by mid May because yeah. they're like eight, nine, ten they're, they're episodes quick each. Ones. So, yeah, yeah. So we'll be talking about some of those as well. Yeah. So do you want to go to Broadway? Yeah, let's go to Broadway, which is literally right around the corner. Just a couple blocks. Yeah, Karen just pointed. Yeah, that I pointed. I'm going yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah. She was in New York before she knows. Um, so I, we're going to revisit a couple of the shows I'm talking about because Alyssa uh, will join us on a future podcast. We're going to have a very them. special guest. But we are heading towards the end of the current theater season, which means lots of Broadway openings and lots of shows opening in general. So uh, the next couple podcasts will probably be uh, chock full of theater reviews. But So I'm going to talk not at full length about a couple. Mrs. Murray's Menagerie is an off-Broadway downtown show. And I know I talked last season about a show called Miles for Mary by a group, a collective called The Mad Ones. Um, so they are actor, writers, and uh, the director, Lila Neugebauer, all as a group come up with the story for any given show. Um, and I don't know if that's out of improv or through truly sitting down, um, but through some degree of, of groupthink. And so this is about, it's set in the late 70s, and it's about a group of six parents who um, are a part of a, an info session. Uh, to talk about this kids program called Mrs. Murray's Menagerie about uh, this woman who runs a library that and, and all the pets. Um, and it's it's eventually going to be one of those adults in a room acting like kids things. So as um, the facilitator asks them more and more questions and we get to learn a bit more about each of the, the six adults at this round table, you know, certain... Um, 
bonds are formed, cert- certain microaggressions appear, um, and you get to see, like, different kinds of people's true colors uh, emerge. Um, and, and and it's funny, but I will say it's one scene. It's not like it's a series of, of these sessions. It's just one. Um, so it lasts about 90 minutes. And um, it went in exactly the direction I thought it would. Like, all the people I thought would be abrasive were abrasive, and all the people I thought would be sympathetic would be sympathetic. Uh, and it, I don't think that it echoes, like, 2019 ways of thinking as much as you could say, oh, well, the way they talk then and the attitudes then are the way people talk now and the way attitudes are now. I think they actually sound like 2019 people speaking in the 1970s. Like, it's a little too close to now. Now, the performers are all very good. And the listen, I will probably talk a bit more about individuals in, in the next round. Um, but it's not a play. Right. It's like an SNL sketch or a mad TV sketch because you're just watching them get kind of irritated at each other and jab at each other. But there isn't a succession of events. Like, there is no actual plot. The premise is these adults sit around and eventually start to, to get on each other's nerves or odd personality traits emerge. But because the the show is designed for these to emerge, like, there's nothing organic for it to happen other than, like, well, if you sit around and start sharing your opinions long enough, you'll, you'll start to piss each other off. talking shit right? to each other. So if yeah. one guy is a salesman and one woman is a, um, a meek single mother, like, eventually, like, the alpha and the beta start to just, like, emerge. But they don't emerge because of this moment leads to this moment, this event leads to this event, which triggers this, and this has to happen in this order of things. Which is, in my mind, the only kind of trenchant writing there could be. So I, I, so I am mixed on it. Okay. Um, I like the kind of fun, experimental work that they do, but I think it's choir preaching. I feel like they know the audience that will come see their shows, and they just give them what they want, but I actually think in its own way, it's low hanging humor. It sounds like it yeah. is. And I would be more interested if they took it in that 1970s because... I honestly think they think they are and the costumes make it look like they are, but they sound very familiar to me. Yeah, very we, now to me. We didn't have... Um, microaggressions weren't a thing in the 70s. Well, well, I mean, you can argue there's a character who exhibits a lot of chauvinistic male tendencies. Well, no, I mean, but I'm just saying... And and they don't use the term microaggression here. But that's what a lot of people will cling on to. Oh, oh, yeah, I recognize that. But I don't think it played itself out in the same way 40 years ago, behaviorally, that it would now. I get... I mean, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. I, I, just, I, I just don't think so. I think it would also depend on the characters. Yeah. Like, you know, would you would you behave a certain way in polite company? Right. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Or, or, like, how, is that how you would behave in a group versus behind closed doors? Yeah, or is, like, you know, do you, yeah. I think people right now have a certain way of asserting themselves in group conversations that they might not have 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Right, right. So... So it is amusing, but I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure and how it, high the art there actually is. And when you when you when you were seeing it, did you feel like 
Um, like, did it feel like it had a point or a purpose? Because you said that it wasn't really plotted necessarily. Those are actually two different questions. It okay. felt like it had points to make, but was purpose-free. Okay. And that's the, because it had a premise. And it's like, we, we want to... These characters are going to jab at each other and you're going to recognize things. But it didn't have a purpose a because purpose. It's, okay. it's just... Well, we found a reason for these guys to sit in the room together. Okay. So that's the thing. And I, I, I get that I'm sounding overly harsh on a show that is funny, but I think we're attributing with doing more than perhaps they actually have. And that's that was right. kind of the case I found with Miles for Mary last year, where it's easy to laugh and be like, oh, that's very amusing, and oh, all oh, the idiosyncratic stuff they're doing with the costumes and the hair, ha ha ha, but... But there's less there there than I think people that's, think there is there. That seems to be a real attraction. It is. The, the if you get the if you get the the time the period, period right stuff, yeah. or you or you nail certain aspects of the time yeah. period you know um that 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 creates like a like a collective intake of breath mm-hmm. that i'm still trying to kind of yeah i think people are like well then clearly it's authentic i'm like well not necessarily. Which is wonderful. I mean, not, I mean, because, like, the work that the designers put into it is, exactly. like, extraordinary yes, to and, source and it. should be saluted yeah. and is separate from the plot. But it, but it is, sort of seems when that gets, when that's spot on, through, yeah. it can actually, which, I mean, let this be a lesson to all you theater makers when you're doing a period piece. You know, make sure that it's spot on. Yeah. Because, and, and spot on in, like, a certain way. Um... Because it'll help elevate the work to, to a degree, I, I think. Yeah, I agree. Critically. It can be meatier. Yeah, I think we say there's a lot of meat to things where there is not. Where it's actually the gloss. Where it's the superficial. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the superficiality that yeah. is creating this sort of, um, I, you know, an illusion of, yeah. of meat, perhaps. But kudos to the designers. The illusion of meat. Yes. Illusion of meat. It's Satan. It's <laughs> Satan? Is that how you say it? Satan. Satan. I call it Satan. <laughs> if you like me, it is satanic. Um, so, yes. So, that's uh, Miles for Mary. But, uh, excuse me. That's uh, Mrs. Murray's Menagerie. But we will catch up to that again in the future. And we'll also catch up to the revival of Oklahoma um, that played off-Broadway in the fall and has actually moved to the Circle and the Square Theater. And I just think it's dynamite. I think it's actually one of the most thrilling things I've seen in a really shallow season. Really? Yeah. And I don't know how much you've heard about it, that without changing any of the plot or or a word, it has essentially been either reinvented or facelifted or the face has actually been put back on because it, it's dark. And it's showing that, that time period in the Oklahoma Territory um, uh, was actually a lot um, heavier for a lot of the people, and it, it, it gives just about every character um, a more self-serving edge, that, so it makes everything come off differently. Now, Daniel Fish, the director, has made some musical arrangements that are very stripped down, so it, it's not just we sing and dance and go from one sunshiny musical number to another, and I think if there are people that push back on this version of the show... That's why, and I understand it, but I think uh, I think it works great, and it's almost three hours long, and I don't think it's particularly slow, um, and the whole staging is great, and the leads, Damon Dano as Curly and Rebecca Naomi Jones as Lori, are great, um, and we will dig into it more, but really highly recommend it. It's one of only two Broadway musical revivals 
this whole season. This, this and Kiss so Me this, Kate are the only, only two. two yeah, revival, uh, only two running. Uh, in terms, in, yes, and the Tonys have elected, I think, to do a musical revival category that will include both of them automatically. Uh-huh. But they also have the option of not doing not one, doing and I think all. we'll just they'll do, it. do it to promote Broadway. But um, Oklahoma should be the one that wins. Interestingly, Oklahoma has never won a Tony for Best Musical or Musical Get Revival. Get here, really? The Tonys didn't exist yet when Oklahoma uh, first bowed, and, and its subsequent revivals have lost. So I'm thinking maybe this is the one that wins, and I hope it wins a few more. Uh, but we'll talk about that again. Uh, what I hope we never talk about again is the current revival of King Lear. Oh, <laughs> oh dude. This, so, okay, uh, we have talked uh, on a few occasions about how every play and every play revival this season has gotten a New York Times critics pick, regardless of how awful it has been. King Lear is the one that bucked the trend, that did not get a critics pick. And this has got Glenda Jackson. And this has got Glenda Jackson, yeah. So the thing it has in my mind that works against it is the director, Sam Gold, who I think can spin gold from original work, like Annie Baker plays, like Circle Mirror Transformation, and uh, even original musicals, like Fun Home, that got him a Tony. But he messes around with the revivals and makes them unrecognizable and takes you completely out of the story. Like, he did that with a Glass Menagerie revival. Um, He's done that with revivals of Othello and Hamlet that included Hamlet running around in his underwear, Um, (laughs) Claudius sitting on the toilet, and Ophelia shoving a bunch of lasagna into her mouth for no reason. Um, So... <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> like you're in the rehearsal room and it's like, you know what, Ophelia, just shove lasagna in your mouth. It'll be great. Like, yeah. what? And he probably said, because our Ophelia is going to be this. But we in the audience never got You have no idea so what like, that like, is. Like, is she supposed to have an eating disorder? Is she just supposed to be generic crazy with a capital C? Um, is she just hungry? Like, it's not communicated. <laughs> is she just hungry? Go to Oklahoma and have the chili. Just chili. There's, a, there's chili in Oklahoma and it's really good. Um... But this Lear is like, it's all over the place. Almost no one looks like they come from the same place, either geographically. I mean, the three daughters don't even have the same accents. Um, Very few people have true grasp, excuse me, of the text. Um, Now, I love Gwenda Jackson, and I'm glad she's doing more Broadway. And I think she is great. But I think she's at such a high level that no one else... It's almost like she's just in another show, which is... uh, Wow. A phrase that gets tossed around a lot by critics now, but, um, like, she doesn't connect as Lear to most of the other people that she shares the stage with, mm-hmm. and I think that's not her fault, that's a directorial choice, uh, uh, you know, it's directorial fiat, essentially, but, but it, it makes her Lear stick out and feel less realized as a result. Right. Um, like, she's doing great Shakespearean acting, and almost everyone else is doing, like, just some high-gloss Broadway stage Broadway acting, acting, which right. is very different. Um, there are a few that succeed on their own, particularly in their own scenes and soliloquies. Jane Howdyshell as Gloucester, the one who gets blinded, is very good. Ruth Wilson, who plays Cordelia, but also plays the character of the fool, I think does a lot. Um, John Douglas Thompson is very good. And n- never does... 
any of the work anyone's doing feel married to the work that anyone else is doing. There, you know, there's everyone is wearing kind of like a like a generic like late twentieth century to modern sort of like expensive designer um, clothing. But where are you? What is this? Ever, you know, it's hard to make out the scenes when it's them in the wild, in the forest, because you're still in a room that's just gilded. It's just gaudy and gold. Right. Um, I'm not sure if it's misconceived or ill-conceived or just barely conceived. But it's bad, Lear. I mean, this is this is a really unfortunate revival. I'm making a cringe face. Karen cringed. And it's it's too bad. I'm just very glad that we had three tall women last season with Glenda Jackson. So by now people are used to, to, to being like, oh, she's back and she can do this. Because if this was a one-off, you know, she did this and nothing else in London a couple of years ago. The version that she did in London was not a Sam Gold directed version, I think. Um, then I think she might not have the same third act that she's having right now. I hope she does another show. I would like to see what she can do with basically anything. Right. But, um, yeah, this one is really a bear to sit through. And, oh, and the other show that I want to talk about is also long, but doesn't feel as long. The Lehman Trilogy is only three actors, three fantastic actors that have come over from the West End. Simon Russell Beale and Ben Miles and Adam Godley, who are known for some TV work they've done, but are primarily uh, actors of the stage. And they they play the original three brothers of the famous Lehman family that started the big financial company. Um, and they play them basically covering about 150 years uh, on a production at the Park Avenue Armory. Um, and they they... It is a lot of narration. They are telling the story and then acting out aspects of this story as these brothers and then as these brothers' descendants to show what happened to the family and the family business over generations, as well as peripheral people as well. I think the total number that they all portray is about 70 people here and there. So it is an acting coup, sometimes hard to follow who is playing what. And each act is about an hour, so it's like three hours and 20 minutes. It, it is a long show, and you only slightly feel it towards the end. Um, if you know nothing about the, the family history, then I think it's uh, very eye-opening. If you know some but not all, then I think it's still interesting. I, I wish that they hadn't made the main focus... Um, uh, like the market failures because there was other drama going on in their lives as well I think originally these they didn't come straight to New York they started in Alabama where they had a cotton farm and were slave owners and I wish there was a bit more attention yeah. focused on that in the first act but again not necessarily not necessarily a flaw just a preference of mine as a storyteller um and I think it's probably impossible to get a seat, but they will do a National Theater Live. Oh, they will do an anti-live? For, uh, yeah, yeah, a presentation of it. So you can see a filmed version of it at some point, and it's worth checking out when those are. Uh, these are wonderful performances. Um, and that was a, a very good evening of theater. It's just, can I just throw this out there? Interestingly, no. the playwright yeah. is... Oh, the Italian. It's he's an Italian, Italian playwright yeah. who wrote this very American story. Yeah. That's kind of extraordinary. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, is, it, is an, it is extraordinary. And, and I only know what I've seen and I've not read it. So I don't know what changed in translation, if anything, yeah, at all. Where the, I, don't, like, I don't know where the idea came like, from. I'm like, yes. so, like, why, what the fuck, New York City Press? Aren't you curious about that? Like, that would have been my first fucking interview. Let's talk to this guy. Like, why did he, how did he find this story? And why is he telling it? Yeah, why it? was he compelled to tell and it? And what, what were the challenges in doing and so? And where did yeah. they tell it in Italy? And how did the Italians respond? Were they like, what the hell is this? Who gives a yeah. shit? Like, what, like, this, that, to me, is really fascinating. Like, this guy, you know, it was, it was, it was translated. It was, you know, it was, it was translated by Ben Power. Um, so clearly, it it, it, yeah. it it wasn't like this guy wrote it. This playwright he didn't wrote write it in the words that we saw. No, to be right. presented at the National Theater. Right. Like, like what a what yes. A, I do think this is something that started small and got bigger. What an amazing story! Like how like that has not been told because I guess nobody cares except for me. I don't know who cares. No, I mean it may have been about availability, or it may have just been. I mean, I don't really know who really did the press for that or what they pushed. I don't know either. But you don't, I mean, how do you push that? Like, you just, you look at something and you say, because clearly you know, because like in Ben Brantley's review, it's the script by the Italian Oh, yeah, I mean, that's been a part of how they've advertised. That's been a part of its, its quote-unquote story, yeah. So it's like, not like nobody didn't know, or it was, you know... No, I mean, yes, you're saying, why doesn't theater press care about anything? Why aren't they finding the other interesting angles of story, yeah. like, where did this guy come from? Where did the age... Yeah, I don't know, because I don't know what is happening with New York theater or the press's uh, coverage of it. I mean, yeah, that is... Either. That I is just find that fascinating, that. that there's this guy in Italy who found this story and wrote it. Yeah. And this is such an American... Like, Where's the American yeah. playwright that dug up this information? Like that they were slave owners and they, they created this yeah. piece. Uh, we'll never questions know. I cannot answer. We can't because we don't we we don't know. But answers I can give again back on the blog pod on Facebook. Um, hit us up with any questions you have. Uh, if you agreed or disagreed about any of the TV stuff we talked about, let us know and. And we're going to go find some Chinese food We're going to go eat somewhere. Chinese food. Yeah. So thanks for hanging out with us. Yep. We look forward to seeing you next week on Hollywood Boulevard. Bye. Bye.